Hello, and welcome to this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. We're joined today by Patrick Hahn. Patrick will be reading to us from and talking about his book, Obedience Pills, ADHD and the Medicalization of Childhood. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. Oh, anytime. I love being read to. And so any opportunity for someone to read to me, I just snap it up. So we're just going to jump right in. And can you talk to us a bit about what led to you writing this book? Well, I have been writing about, I'm a teacher by profession. I've been teaching undergraduate courses in biology for the last 30 years. And I became aware of some capacities that were being unused. So at the preposterously advanced age of 51, I enrolled in the writing program at the Johns Hopkins University. And at the even more preposterously advanced age of 54, I walked across the stage and received my second master's degree. And since then, it's been an amazing journey. It just keeps getting more and more amazing. And I wanted to write about medical harm and the over-medicalization of everyday life. Not specifically psychiatry, but if you are interested in over-medicalization and medical harm, psychiatry provides a seemingly infinite vein of material. This is my third book. It's on the harmful effects of... My first book was a history of madness and genetic determinism, was a history of psychiatric genetics. My second book, Prescription for Sorrow, was on antidepressants, suicide, and violence. And my third book, Obedience Pills, is about the harmful effects of the drugs that are prescribed for something called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. Wow. Could we hear a bit from the book, please? Okay, with pleasure. On the morning of Wednesday, 13 December 2006, four-year-old Rebecca Riley died in her family's home in Hull, Massachusetts after gasping her last on a pile of old magazines and newspapers just a few feet away from the bed where her parents slept. Later that morning, Rebecca's mother, Carolyn, discovered the child's lifeless body, clad in only a pink pull-up diaper, her face and hair covered in frothing, foaming body fluids. She was already cold to the touch. Rebecca's father, Michael, was still slumbering abed after repeatedly hitting the snooze alarm. The autopsy revealed that Rebecca's death was caused by an overdose of clonidine, an antihypertensive drug she had been prescribed two years earlier for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. The pathologist also noted that Rebecca had signs of heart and lung damage which she ascribed to the prolonged use of clonidine. Keoko Kifuji, the pediatrician at Tufts University Medical Center, who prescribed clonidine to two-year-old Rebecca after a 20-minute consultation, agreed to stop treating patients and was placed on paid administrative leave while the Commonwealth investigated the case. Dr. Kifuji received immunity from prosecution in return for testifying against Michael and Carolyn 
both of whom were convicted in separate trials of the murder of their young daughter. Tufts Medical Center affirmed that Kifuji provided appropriate care for Rebecca, and in the autumn of 2009, she was allowed to resume treating patients. Every day across this great land of ours, millions of children are swallowing pills for something called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. This is still largely an American obsession, by the way, although the rest of the world is catching up with us. The United States spends several times as much on ADHD meds than all the rest of the world put together. The idea that millions of children, mostly boys, are walking around with defective brains that require them to ingest powerful psychotropic drugs every day of their lives in order to cope with the quotidian tasks of childhood has become received wisdom. So what is the story? What are the harms caused by this mass drugging of children? What are the benefits? Who benefits? These questions form the basis of my book. In my quest for answers, I have examined the scientific literature, scrutinized news accounts, listened to experts, and borne witness to the stories of those whose loved ones have been devastated by these drugs. I will confess my bias at the outset. I believe our default preference should be not to drug kids for behavioral problems and that the burden of proof rests on anyone who thinks this is a good idea. There are literally hundreds of reasons why any given child might have problems with inattention or hyperactivity. Far better to identify the source of that child's problems and address that, rather than to attribute the child's problems to some mythical disease entity the existence of which has never been demonstrated. Once upon a time, this mass drugging of children was the subject of spirited debate, but that controversy seems, for the most part, to have died down. My goal is to reignite that controversy. What a powerful opening. So what made now, I noticed this was last year that the book came out, But still, what made now the right time for it? Because it sounds really timely and relevant, like no matter when it's going to be, because there are so many things that people are prescribed like medication for. But I'm just curious about what made now the right time for it. And then also what sort of pushback, if any, were you expecting? And did that happen? Yeah, well, as I said, this was for a while the subject of spirited debate. And there were three rounds of lawsuits against the Ritalin manufacturers, which I document in my book, none of which came to anything. And there was a lady I spoke to for my book, Gretchen Lefevre Watson. She was a professor of clinical psychology at Eastern Virginia Medical School. She published a paper showing this was in the around 1999, I think. She published a paper showing that the rate of diagnosis and drugging of children for ADHD in Virginia public schools 
was a jaw-dropping one out of six, and an even more jaw-dropping one out of three of white boys. And there was a massive effort among the ADHD industry to discredit her. And she left her position at the Eastern Virginia Medical School. And it was right about that time the debate just dropped off the radar. So the more I learned about this subject, this was around 2006, the more I learned about this subject, the more I decided it was time to reignite that controversy. Currently, we spend $20 billion a year drugging children for this diagnostic label. For that kind of money, we could pay the mid-career salaries of an extra 350,000 teachers or 800,000 teachers' aides. And this looks to me like just a preposterous misallocation of resources. I love that you knew what kind of her professional, I guess the consequences of her writing that paper, knowing that you still said, you know what, I'll do you one better. If that was their response to a paper, I'm writing a whole book and I'm doing all this research on it. So I love that it kind of seems that you, you know, you didn't take what they tried to do to her or what they were able to do to her. Instead of just letting that quiet you as well, it propelled you to write a book. Could we hear more from the book, please? Okay. Springfield Elementary School, where I began my formal education more than 50 years ago, stands alongside Route 212 in Pleasant Valley, PA, right next to the Trinity United Church of Christ. I can hear the Carolyn Bells playing, a melody for a time that seems at once fantastically remote and yet eerily familiar as long slumbering memories begin to stir. On an early Sunday morning in October, not another soul is in sight, but in my mind's eye, I can see scores of children running, laughing, shouting, playing, fulfilling their childhoods. It seems as if we were in constant motion back then, climbing to the top of the sliding board, whizzing down and scurrying back around for another go, swinging on the swings, going up and down on the seesaw, clambering around on the monkey bars, taking turns pushing each other on the merry-go-round. After school, we played tag or hide-and-go-seek or rode our bikes or climbed trees or explored the nearby woods. In the summertime, I kept an aquarium stocked entirely with creatures I had collected from the local streams and ponds. Tadpoles, minnows, whirligig beetles, water striders, snails, flatworms, and my pride and joy, two crayfish, each of which I had daringly plucked from the water with my own fingers before sprinting home with my prize. In the wintertime, we would tote our sleds to a nearby farm, drag them up to the top of the hill, and go zooming down, only to drag them back up again and again and again. I have returned here to the playground of my childhood to gain some insight into the question, 
what is behind the explosive increase in the diagnosis and drugging of children for something called ADHD? Are there really millions of children out there who were born with an organic brain disorder that requires daily drug treatment? Or can the answer be found in the way society has changed over the years? Wow. So you told us a bit about some of the research that you did to compile the book and bring the book together. But what were some things that you found that surprised you? Well, in the course of researching this book, I told you about my conversation with Gretchen Lefevre. I talked to another wonderful lady, Deborah Ria. She is a professor of physical education at Texas Christian University. And she and her colleagues came up with something they called the LINK program for Let's Inspire Innovation and Kids. And they gave children in grades kindergarten through three an hour of extra outdoor free playtime every day. Now, this was done without in, in four 15-minute segments. And this was inserted into the school day without lengthening the total school day at all. And they found the incidence of off-task, disruptive, and self-injurious behaviors in the classroom went down. Students' body mass index went down. And the incidence of positive behaviors on the playground, smiling, laughing, clapping, hopping, skipping, jumping, and cheering went up. Imagine that. Kids who are allowed to play outside laugh and smile more. Oh, and what about those all-important standardized test scores? They went up. They didn't go up by a lot, but they went up. They didn't go down. So more outdoor free playtime, happier, healthier kids, and higher test scores. That sounds to me like a win, win, win. Now, I asked Dr. Rhea if her program was a cure for ADHD. And with proper scientific caution, she declined to say as much. But what on earth is ADHD but just the name we give to a vast variety of disruptive, off-task, or self-injurious behaviors? I wonder if that school kept the model of that, you know, that day and kept that learning and used it going forward. Yes, that's caught on. There's a number of schools in Texas and Oklahoma that have incorporated this model. And isn't it odd that it's not like nationwide? Because it sounds, I guess, in some ways similar to what I've been hearing about the Finnish program and that yes. where they have more play and um, less testing and the kids are performing really well. And it just seems like the U.S. could really learn from some other models as well. Yeah, I think it's the emphasis on standardized test scores. And people think the answer is sticking the kids' noses in the material all day long as if that's going to ensure learning, but it won't. I mean, you have to let children develop on their own timetable and give them age-appropriate expectations. Yeah. Could we have our final reading, please? 
Okay. Instead of teaching children wisdom, temperance, fortitude, and justice, we school them in mental health awareness, encouraging them to think of themselves as fragile creatures whose brains can go haywire anytime for no apparent reason, and to look for succor in a bottle of pills. Nearly 50 years ago, psychologist L. Allen Sroof raised concerns that these drugs are a chemical cop-out and a distraction from looking for real solutions to real problems. Since then, we have devolved into a drug-obsessed dystopia Philip K. Dick could not have imagined in his worst nightmares. Total annual spending on ADHD treatments now exceeds $20 billion a year. And it isn't just stimulant drugs whose consumption has skyrocketed. Prescriptions for antidepressant and antipsychotic drugs for youth have also skyrocketed. And what are we getting for all this relentless drugging. The kids are not all right. The proportion of youths afflicted with often crippling depression and bipolar disorder has soared, along with the youth suicide rate and the overdose death rate. This is not what happens when treatments work. Even some of the biggest names in this field now seem appalled by the monster they have helped create. The late C.K. Connors, author of the Connors Comprehensive Behavior Rating Scale and one of the principal investigators of the MTA study, called skyrocketing rates of ADHD diagnosis a national disaster of dangerous proportions. Roger Griggs, the pharmaceutical company executive who introduced Adderall in 1994, has referred to stimulant drugs as nuclear bombs, whose use is warranted only under extreme circumstances. And Edward Hollowell, the doyen of adult ADHD, has warned us we are pathologizing boyhood. Schools want these little goody-goodies who sit still and do what they're told, these robots, and that's not who boys are. As if all this weren't enough. A 7 January 2020 article in Business Insider discussed parents who were treating their children's ADHD with something called medical marijuana. The piece did not mention what the people who thought this was a good idea had been smoking. The following year, a review paper in the March-April issue of the Harvard Review of Psychiatry noted that the risk of Parkinson's disease was elevated a staggering six to eight times in individuals who had been prescribed stimulant medication for ADHD. Studies in animal models have shown that amphetamine and methamphetamine produce the same changes in the brain, including protein misfolding, 
that are associated with Parkinson's. Interestingly, Ritalin was not shown to produce these effects. The reader will note that most of the Hill criteria for establishing cause and effect have been satisfied here. In plain English, these drugs are causing Parkinson's disease. Children who swallow these pills today will be suffering these ill effects decades from now. Wow. Where can we buy the book? This is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. I want to say that uh, this book was published by Samistat Health Writers Cooperative, which was formed by David Healy. He was a professor at psychiatry at Bangor University in Wales for most of his career. Just a couple of years ago, he switched his base of operation to McMaster University in Ontario. And he has been my unofficial mentor these past eight years. And he was having difficulty. He's published something like 20 books, and now even he's having trouble getting published. I can tell you the picture is uh, not very encouraging. The university presses, if they don't have a medical school, are not going to be interested in a medical book. And if they do have a medical school, they're not going to want to say any to publish anything that would incur the wrath of the drug companies. And I found that the mainstream nonfiction publishers, basically, they're all owned by three giant companies. And there's no way in without an agent. So Dr. Healy formed this company to give an outlet for voices, which might otherwise not be heard. That's amazing. 